Welcome to the Monsters and Treasure Podcast, where we talk way too long about a topic but only give you the best parts. I'm K.R. King of D&D Homebrew, here as always with Daniel Norton of Bandit's Keep. How are you doing today, Daniel? I'm just over here sorting through our stack of mail. Because today is another super exciting call-in show. All right, it's that time of year again for another super spectacular call-in show. Uh, these particular call-ins were called in by writing. Is that still a call-in, K.R.? I guess, you know, why not? All right. So uh, Michael has sent us a few emails over to our uh, our email, which is uh, monsters. It's in the show notes. All right. So let's see what the first one's guns and D&D. So this is kind of long and I'm not a you know voice actor, uh, funny enough. Uh, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will point out they talk about uh, critical role. There is a gunslinger on that. I don't know if you've seen the, the TV show. We may have talked about this. But they do no, have a, I have a not. I've watched the first couple of episodes. I don't remember the, the gunslinger, but... Yeah, so so he's basically a fighter, and they have some special abilities. It's a homebrew thing. And mm-hmm. they say here, Michael says here, that uh, they do different... Uh, they have critical fails, so guns jam on critical fails, and that there's different guns do better or worse accuracy and different amounts of damage. So they've got a variety of things, which is really interesting. I think if you're going to use guns, you want that, right? And But how much do we want that? You know, like I was thinking the other day, uh, myself, there's more to this, but I was actually talking to Todd, my friend Todd, and I was like, I don't even know if we need short bows and long bows. Why not just have a bow? And we're well, and, and if you have a crossbow or a bow, do you have bow failure? Do you roll, if you roll, right. I don't know, a, a, depending on what you're using to hit a one. Oh, let's see if your bow, fa- your bow, your string broke, breaks, and you got to restring it. I mean, you could have that. Right. Is that what you want in your game, or do you just want it to always be? This is where guns do come up because, in like Pathfinder, yeah. you have to take care of it uh, for an hour every day, or your gun can jam. You got to clean your gun at the end of the day. Right. We don't really play it, but then if you're captured or you lose your gun, I don't know, you could make a situation where, guess what? You can't clean your guns. There's a chance they're going to misfire. You could throw that in. But so just interesting that it's an idea that. Just make it part of the weapon. Do you have to then make it part of, oh, your sword got broken because we're playing a gun thing where they can fail or something? You know, well, what, I, what level of of that do you want to make a game mechanic? Well, it's interesting, too, because I think what we're doing here is we're like uh, mixing tropes in a way, right? Because, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a gun person. Uh, I mean, I've fired guns in my life. I was in the military. And, yes, you know, the what we had was M16s, uh, A1s. And the they did jam. I mean, they taught you how to clear them, they, but it was pretty uncommon. Somebody's going to call, and it was actually like served a long time. Will tell me it's more common, right. but I, you know, we we mostly. I mean, thankfully, I only ever shot it on the range. Um, but you know, it it is something that does happen. But I wonder, is it something that we worry about? And I think people think about it in D anD D because we start thinking muskets, right? And like powder getting wet. And so I think if you get into that detail of it, like okay, these guns are. But black powder weapons, they're not like modern guns with, you know, uh, I don't know what you call that, uh, gas-powered, you know, ammo. (laughs) I'm sure that's not the right way to say it. Uh, You know, maybe they're more likely to jam. I just don't really know. But yes, cleaning is obviously an important thing. I think the thing, though, is when you you start having to make special rules for the guns, what I start to think is, why am I adding, why am I nerfing this? Is it because it's just too powerful? And that might be the question to ask. Well, and if you say a gun does a certain amount of damage, because I think uh, he has uh, guns on this next one, Treasure Island, where he says he's mm-hmm. run people through this small group of a Treasure Island setup, and he uses Nave and OSC, and the guns right. do 3D6 damage, can only be fired once per fight, they make noise, 
So 3d6 damage as opposed to a gun that shoots me personally going to kill me. It doesn't do right. 3d6. It just kills you or, or if it hits you in the arm or the leg. Right. So that's always the thing in a gun thing, just like crossbows and swords and hit points in general. Right. How do you decide that? What the level of damage is for you? This is interesting. He has this just once per fight thing. Well, you know, that actually is somewhat reminiscent of Lamentations of the Flame Princess because they basically have elaborate rules on loading it. And when it comes down to it, you're never going to be able to load your gun in the middle of combat unless unless you're like behind a wall and like you're people are shooting at each other. But in like a typical D&D type combat, you're going to shoot once, which is a solution. As far as the damage, I mean, 3D6 in a game like OSE where your average hit points are like four or five, you know, <laughs> you're probably going to kill somebody right. on, you know, uh, so I think it is pretty deadly. You know, it's funny, too, that this comes up because I just noticed that in Chainmail, which, of course, I'm using as a basis for my game, uh, they have guns. They have, uh, oh, yeah. you know, uh, they have powder weapons and they shoot differently than bows. They, and what they do is they just ignore armor. And I wonder if that's not just the solution I would take, thinking about it like that. Like, they're just like anything else. They have a range. They're just like a bow, but they ignore armor. Maybe they shoot slower, just like a heavy crossbow would. I don't know. I don't think this is well, a great I, solution, which is why I don't use guns. Because <laughs> the period that they're in, the chainmail thing, was the period when they had the the aquabus, mm-hmm. I believe, and mm-hmm. I can't remember some of the other weapons. They were the beginnings yeah. of the weapons. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. when you get to once you move into Napoleonic miniatures, but which is not what chainmail is, but right, it's all guns. You know, <laughs> the right. swords yeah, yeah. are only used when you charge or when you're hand to hand and all that kind of stuff. It's well, all and based in artillery. And I, obviously, was huge. Right. And I think this is what's really interesting, right? I think that you need to have either, and this is where, right, when do we need a mechanic, right? Like this, the gun conversation is really interesting to me because let's say, so I have Warriors of, of Wars of Mars, which is a miniatures game that TSR put out. And they very specifically have a rule in there because it's based on, I guess, the, the Martian books, or the, the, the John uh, Carter the books. Edgar Rice yeah, Burroughs. Yeah. And, and basically there's like an honor system. Like you wouldn't shoot somebody if they don't have a gun and that's just in the thing. It's like, if you, if you have a sword and they have a gun, you, you, I'm sorry, if you have a, a gun and they have a sword, you don't shoot them because that's not honorable. So, but it's like player, players aren't going to be honorable. <laughs> well, you're, that's you know? your, if you say you can't, because this is this honor well, system that you're in and you just can't yeah, as a right. rule mechanic, you could just say that and you would never right. go against your honor. This would be, you'd be dishonored. You'd never be able to survive in a society. And of course, those are the mechanics that you're making because of the deadliness right. of a gun. And so that's why I'm just like, and I can't remember what we came out with. I don't I like don't to use them in a setting because it just complicates things. And I don't care whether I'm making up the world anyway. So I just don't have them. Yeah, I don't like them in the setting where we basically are, you know, what, what we'll call it pseudo medieval, as people often call it mm-hmm. d and I don't like them in those settings. And I think, I don't know if I said that last time, but if, if not, then I'm changing my mind. Yeah. But generally and we, speaking, I might be totally if you're running, if you're running Treasure Island, yeah, of course you need to have guns. And that's a whole yeah. other thing. And I think that's important, right? If we're going to have guns, it, but if guns are the norm and bows are not, then why do you need special rules? Just make them bows. That's kind of how I would do it. But again, that's, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, yep. Just like Michael did. All right. So we have another email from Michael. Okay, so curious to get what's been what I should do with my daughters who are age eight and ten. I run games with them at OSR system exclusively. I'm not interested in running adventures nor investing the time to create characters, something like 5e, too many steps, but I'm doing them to service since most likely they will play modern style games as they get older. You know, I don't think that's true. So I'll give my opinion on that too. So basically what he's saying here is 
uh, he talks a little bit about playing different systems and how he's got preferences, but then even a player who they played with who really likes 5e, uh, you know, enjoyed, <coughs> excuse me, enjoyed some aspects of Mouse Ritter, which they were running, um, which is cool. I've never played Mouse Ritter, but it uh, seems interesting. But he, then the real question here, the meat of it is like, what should I, am I doing a disservice to somebody, in this case, his daughters who are young, by not introducing them to the most current, most popular game? I don't, my answer here is no. I actually think that if you teach somebody to play uh, OSE or BX, D&D, when they sit down to play 5e, they're going to know enough to play it and and vice versa. Like I think if somebody's playing a game, a D&D is D&D, you know, and I think that most people that play that aren't obsessed with the numbers, like maybe I am, <laughs> don't care that much about it. They just go, what die do I have to roll here? And they roll it. What's important to them is playing their character, going on adventures, having imagination. So I think if it's easier for you and it's simpler for the kids to play a simpler game, I would just do that. I wouldn't worry too much about that. They should be learning 5e. I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I, I think exactly. Whatever system at 8 and 10, you're just introducing the idea of having these characters and then you do have battles or you maybe maybe you're just having a role playing situation or whatever. However, you're doing those things. You know, I, in my current um in person game, one of the players brought his daughter in who had no experience. Now she's uh, 18, but when she first started off, she just was like, what do I do? I, and I, we would say, Oh, you can, you can shoot the bow or you can do this or you can talk to them and whatever. And she was really into playing the tabaxi, the, the cat character. And I allowed that, even though I don't have my, I came up with an elaborate reason why she was there, <laughs> but now it's been like four sessions and she's picking up the game. She's becoming part. She's remembering the stuff. And that's a 5e game. It could be a Pathfinder game or something really complicated. I do think the OSC sort of or OSR kind of world might be less, you know, stuff to learn. I also understand when she thinks of D&D, her dad was playing it was 5e because she's watched Critical Role and all that stuff. Right. So she did have some sense of it watching the show because they talk about it. But what she didn't understand the mechanics at all because they don't really go into the mechanics on that show, right? They right. Don't, they do a little bit. but it, so. No, I think I do think if if your if your kids are good, I, who knows? They're eight and ten. Let's say five years from now or ten years, whenever they really right. start seriously playing, the landscape may have changed too. The That's OSR true. may be much more than just a niche kind of thing. Um, we don't know where the hobby's going to go because if you had told me uh, what ten years ago that D and D, because at that point four E had just come out, or I guess it came out a little bit before then, but. 3.5 world, if you said, oh, it's going to sweep the nation, this D&D, I would have said, well, apparently the nation's getting a lot brighter because <laughs> this rule is complicated. You know, that right. that 3.5 <laughs> was like, wow. So, but of course things changed because 5e right. and the popular, and I don't know, nerd world became popular. I don't know what exactly happened to make mm -hmm. it so popular. I also think the satanic panic thing faded away, but that's another discussion. Yeah, and, and what I think is, well, I guess one other thing I'll add, even though I said, well, if you're playing OSC, play OSC, I think that's fine. If you did want to give them a taste of 5e, you could get the starter box. I think they still make that. And, like, it's coming to that time of year where, like, they'll uh, have stores will be selling them for, like, nine bucks and eight bucks for that. I have, like, three of them. Because every time I see one, I'm like, eight dollars for a starter box. <laughs> it's like, you pick it up and it's like, it's got that uh, uh, Fendelver adventure that people will talk about being great. I've never played it, but, and it has pre-gens 
and they only has the pregens. Like all the rules, if I remember it right, are right on the pregen. Like it's a super simple way to get into five right. E. So if you really want to experiment and have them play things that are, although I do think it just has base classes. I'm pretty sure it's like fighter, magic user, cleric, thief, and then it's like halfling, dwarf, whatever. Like it doesn't have you know uh, cat people or or elder yeah. people. Uh, you know, like the the later uh, editions would have. But at least if they want to get a sense of that mechanic, right, you can do that. So, yeah, and they I have the that, same thing, and Pathfinder has a starting thing, same sort of thing to get you into the three-action economy and all that stuff. So yeah, it, I've heard it, that, it is very simplified. I've actually heard the Pathfinder set is very cool. Now, as a side note, I, I need to look at it. I've seen a couple people talk about it. and, and it looks I, I, it's, like, it's good. It's a good yeah. introduction. I, I had already played the 3.5 extensively, So, I, but the, but the three-action thing was what I needed to figure out. What does this mm-hmm. exactly do? And it's interesting. It's, it's, yeah. it's a, you know, and that, and that was helpful. All right, so one more from Michael. Uh, this one is about alignments. So here they're talking about that they don't like the nine-point alignment system either, but they do like Morcox interweaving of Lauren Chaos in the books. Uh, and they're saying Pathfinder, which we're talking about, is going to switch to Anthemus, Edicts, Anathmus. and Anathmus. And, uh, Anathmus. Right, right, because alignment, we all learned what alignment means now because none of us knew what that meant our whole life. And then like we, now we have to learn what Anathmus mean. But, you know, and they have holy and unholy versus good and evil. Uh, yeah, okay. I don't, I'm not the guy that's like, all orcs are evil. Like, I don't buy that. I think if you if you are a sentient being, you can make a choice on some level. Unless you're a cursed species. I mean, there are things. So I don't have a problem with good and evil because I use those in my game. But I don't put them towards peoples. You know, I think that's really where the issue is here. And I think changing names is not the solution. That's just my, Daniel's getting up on his social block. I, I don't think that's the solution. The solution is, you know, not saying certain peoples are evil by nature and can't be changed. Monsters are different, right? Chimera is some kind of mythical creature that is just evil by nature. It likes to destroy. It takes no joy in, you know, anything. It eats flowers, you know, and it cuts people up for pleasure. That's an evil thing. And I don't mind saying that's evil. I don't want to call a, a chimera unholy. It's evil. Um, I think I think that uh, what they're talking about is I don't know. I haven't seen the new remaster in the Pathfinder, so I, I don't know what's going to be the case there. So I'm not going there. But I think you're exactly right with the humanoids. Any sentient creatures. Since I've said this over and over, this is my soapbox. We only base it <laughs> on human beings are the only sentient creatures, and they run the gamut of all exactly. alignments. So they're not essentially good or evil. They're just whatever their situation is and how they act in the world. I also think when you get into monsters being evil or good, essentially, right? A unicorn is created by some celestial or what, you know, touched by something. And so therefore it is just good, Mm -hmm. but it's also not real as you're saying, like it's, it's an artificial, it's almost like a robot by the rules of Isaac Asimov, right? Cannot harm people and, you know, that right. whether we think of the Terminator, right? It's it's constructed such, but it doesn't have an alignment. It doesn't think about what it's doing in a way. And obviously right. a unicorn or uh, let's say a, let's think of an evil construct that actually thinks, but it's still, it, there's an artificiality to it or something. So it's beyond the alignment world that we're used to because we're sentient beings. We think there is free will, whatever you think about that, because that's a whole other discussion. So I think the alignments have never worked in for me just because nobody is essentially one thing or another that that, that has a line. We could talk about having alignment, you know, and there are no mythical monsters in the real world. So, so yeah, I think that one of the discussions we had have in this other group is gnolls are, you know, 
Because again, a lot of people are now saying orcs, because I run orcs like you're saying. I've always run them as their mm-hmm. culture is very much a warlike culture. That's what they honor, like Vikings and stuff. But but a knoll is, it says in the books, created as by this evil god to just roam. They're, they're like a magical monster, right? They don't they don't have a personality. But sure. you could decide that a knoll breaks free of that somehow. Right. And it just wanders the world because, of course, you know, like the old chaos theory of Jurassic Park, right, where something is always going to break away. Nothing ever stays the same. So if there were enough evil creatures of this certain type, maybe one of them would have something would happen to them and they would they would change their alignment. I, I don't know. You know, that that's more of a story thing than just a hard and fast rule thing. Right. And I think that's how we build story. You know, I mean, we, we, we take what is a trope and then we change it. Right. I mean, that's basically how you do it. I was thinking, though, you say a, a construct. And I was thinking, you know, somebody probably might think like Frankenstein's monster is evil. Right. But just the opposite, really. You know, it, it, they, the idea of the monster is really that it's not one thing. It looks terrible and and maybe does acts that uh, would people would find appalling, right? Because it doesn't really know and it's confused. But the the creature itself is not wholly evil. And in fact, it's quite intelligent in the book, especially the book versus the movies, <laughs> you know? Yes. Well, in the movie, though, the original one, he meets the old blind man who doesn't see him. And the old right. blind man treats him well. Says, come in, my right. friend. Sit by the fire, whatever. When he meets the little girl and they're throwing the daisy petals in, he just doesn't realize that she can't right. swim. And exactly. throws her. <laughs> so, but it is his appearance and his, of course, lack of intellect. He's really kind of a, uh, at least in the movie version. I looked at the the original one many many years ago. I can't remember. Was he was he of reasonable intelligence in the? Oh book? yeah, in the book, it's really different. I mean, I have not looked at it in right. a long time either. But it, he's like, I don't want to say he's a poet, but like he's like at that level. Like he's like he's a philosopher. He talks about you know. It's very interesting. And if you ever see the show. Oh man, I think it's Penny Dreadful. Have you ever seen the show? Okay, I've they not had, just they, ads they, for it. They, they've got Frankenstein's monster in it, and he's much more like I think the book. And it's been a long time, and he's he's my very much sympathetic character. You know, didn't, he, didn't he, Robert De Niro played uh, in Kenneth uh, Branagh's version of Frankenstein, and Robert De Niro played the monster, right. and I think he played him intelligent. Yeah, because I, I, I believe like in the book, saying. and again, it's been a long, long time. So I read that like in high school, and I'm quite old. If people don't know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the monster is much different than you would think. But so, yeah, so, you know, I was just thinking, but you could like say make a construct that's whole purpose is to destroy life. Right. So people yes. would look at that as being evil, but really it's not evil. Maybe the person who made it was evil. Right? So it's just an interesting thing. But anyways, yeah, I, I don't, I don't mind using those terms for some things, but I generally stick with uh, chaos and lot. I think I said that I, I like that better. Yeah. And um, whereas to me that that's an interesting thought because to me that's, yeah. um, it's another distinction that you can use, right. but it's an artificial sort of, it's just an idea of, cause, cause ultra, you know, you, you do need both law right. and chaos. If you have one thing or the other, so that they sort of are symbiotic and it, it becomes something else, you know, in a, in a philosophical way, but it's just convenient to, to, to be able to divide things or something. 100%. And again, it's, it's a game and we're trying to, <laughs> exactly. you know, you know, you, you need that, you know, evil uh, air quoting, you know, yeah. m- giant that's destroying the city so that the players have something to fight. Uh, all right. So that's uh three from Michael. Let's go into some uh, call-ins. We have Jason. All right. So these are, I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm going to play them in order or not, but I'm going to start with this one. 
It's called Shock Colin Two, Colin Show Two. So it's it's based on our last Colin Show. So it's got to be the first. Uh, you have to appreciate okay. that we released Colin Show Two on the twenty fourth, and Jason called in on the twenty fourth. Okay, <laughs> he is not messing around. All right, hopefully you can hear this. Let's see. Hey guys, just listen to Colin Show Two. Great show. Yeah, I think being a cleric of Keanu Reeves is a great idea. Obviously, it would depend on the campaign you're playing in, but I would totally allow that as Game Master, and I think that would be a blast, and especially if the player you know, really got into it and did it right. I, I played a... We, we did a short game of the Talisman role-playing game, and I, I was playing effectively a bard. I, I forget what they're called in that system. And my character cast their spells by doing dirty limericks now again this was wasn't a actual play podcast or anything it was among you know a group of friends and stuff and, and so you know so for us inside our group it was okay to be a little bit raunchy but it, it was a lot of fun you, you know um I, I wouldn't do that if i went to a open table somewhere or if i went to a convention somewhere or people i didn't know but I, I think within the group, if if the humor fits, it's great. And you know what? If you're with your friends and your humor is not exactly like theirs, but they're having a good time, like you guys said, it's not hurting anything. Let them do it. There's no harm in it. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I And, and I think that's a, an awesome thing because they're taking the game and they're making it their own. And that's a huge part of the draw of role-playing games, that you're not just locked in certain categories. Uh, I, I will push back against Joe a little bit, though, where Joe was talking about Rock Attack and all that. And, we, you know, we have killed some big opponents kind of quickly. I'm in that Pathfinder game, that Wrath of the Righteous game. But we've also had many, many combats last multiple sessions. So it's not we might kill a big a big bad opponent like with two hits, but it's still a three or four hour combat most of the time unless it's only one opponent that we're up against. So, yes, you deal out crazy amounts of damage, but yes, the combat still takes a long time compared to other games. Um, Now, maybe not other games that same complexity, but there are games where the combat moves a lot faster than Pathfinder 1. I'm really enjoying the game. I'm not beating the game up, you know, and that tactical play is something I like in the game, so I'm enjoying that, but the... It's not fair to say that, you you know, combat goes faster at high levels. You know, it might go faster at high levels if it's a bunch of people against one opponent. But if you have multiple opponents on the board, it's still going to take a while to get through everything. Well, it's interesting because he had two things. I'll talk about the Keanu Reeves one first. As I said, that was my first introduction to uh, 5e back in 2019. I went to this game store and played, and I was like, Keanu Reeves. And, and then as the game went along, my character became her first acolyte because I enjoyed the way she played this. So I said, okay, my, I can't remember what I had. I think it was a monk or something. And I just said, I am now, you know, a, a devotee of the Keanu Reeves. And I got, she made these little cards up and I got this card of him as in this beatific pose, you know, and it was fun. And it didn't, it just, it just worked the same way everything else worked, but it was a little flavor that she had created at the table. And so it was fine. But I know that some of my old, buddies I played with many years ago who took it very seriously might be like they didn't like pop culture references in the game per se the immersion and all that kind of stuff or just they were just grumpy old guys but I think too that they might see that and realize oh she's bringing something to this and be okay with it as I was you know I just was like what is this, this is kind of weird and then I liked it um 
And then the other thing that he was talking about, again, I could see you shaking you when he heard about the three-hour combat. Because, <laughs> yeah, those long combats, you know, if you're not into that, if that isn't something you enjoy, uh, some of those more complicated tactical systems, uh, you know, wouldn't be for you. The other thing I would say is I just had a thing in a Pathfinder game where we snuck up on this campsite with this these villains and we did our tactics really well, blasted them, got rid of some stuff, and the battle was very quick. And the GM was kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, guys. And we were all like, no, no, that was great, because we used our tactics to make this battle only be, you know, a half an hour or something. It wasn't very long at all. It was, And in fact, it could have been 15 minutes if we, but we were still cautious and all this stuff. So sure. it can happen. You know, it can happen, these short things, if you outsmart them or whatever, Uh but the game is designed to have battles that are a little longer than that. And again, I know that was the big thing at the super high levels where it's the rocket tag. I guess it depends on the system. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And it, I agree, of course, with the Keanu Reeves thing. I think, that, I mean, again, I sometimes like, oh, I really roll my eyes when somebody makes a thing. But I'm sure there mm-hmm. were plenty of people playing in the 80s, making Monty Python jokes and referring to different things and talking about Tolkien and whatever, like what becomes not pop culture? Like if we talk about hobbits and we talk about, mm-hmm. you know, say we have them do something that was in the book, is that pop culture or is that okay? You know, it's like, eh, it comes down to the table. I think tone is important though. Like if you're playing this grim, dark, Mork Borg campaign and everybody's this, and then, you know, one person joins like, oh, I join your game and all of a sudden they're Keanu Reeves. You know, that might be weird. You might want to be like, hey, you know what? And, I, and I've had that happen actually in my Warrior game. One of the players made a character and they showed me like the art for it. And I could just tell right away. I was like, and they're like, Oh, they're going to be like a teenager and they're going to be like kind of dumb and have a Valley girl voice. And I'm like, no, we're in the middle of writing this campaign. It's been sword and sorcery. You're not adding a Valley girl teenager. That doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. Like you want to play that character, but it's not for this game. Play the character differently. If you want to play that build or play that character somewhere else, because I would love a Valley Girl, you know, uh, fighter in a different game, just not in this one. So I think tone's important, and it's it's something that uh, that you have to keep in mind. But I mean, like I, my god in my world is Astor, the the god of sheep herders, and that's constantly a joke, you know. Of course, I'm referencing the very first mention of Hastor, who becomes the king in yellow and all the Lovecraftian stuff. But his very first mention is in a uh, a story where he's the god of sheep herders. So I'm always like, mm-hmm. eventually Hastor is going to turn. <laughs> but right now, everybody's like, oh, god of sheep herders, you know, some very gentle god. So in my mind, I see this like dark thing, but everybody else is like, oh, it's, it's funny, you know. So anyways, as far as the rocket tag and the other stuff, I think that, uh, again, I don't have experience with that, but, and I did roll my, oh, I, I have in 5e, I had, I've had multiple session combats, I think maybe twice, maybe in my three years of running the campaign. But I think that the idea of tactics and combat, I, okay, so this is, I'm going to posit something, which is probably going to get me in trouble. I think that games like, and, and, I mean, and what I mean like, meaning they give you lots of hit points, games like 5e or Pathfinder, where you have lots of protection, lots of hit points are actually designed for people that aren't good at tactics because they need to be able to stand there and take 20 blows before they die. I think if you were really good at tactics, you could play a character that if they got hit once, they'd be dead because you would just avoid those hits because you'd be smart and you'd sneak up on things, you'd do whatever. So I don't know that even though those games are, are marketed as tactical, I wouldn't call them tactical. I would call them more like superhero, which I, you've heard people say. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, though. I think that's kind of cool. I love the idea that, like, Superman just flies down and starts punching people and gets knocked across the building. You know, it's—but, it's, you know, the sniper <laughs> that knows he'll die if he gets shot once 
sneaks in and gets that one shot and gets out. And I think that that to me is tactical. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think there's, there's many ways to look at that in terms of tactics, because if you are in a situation where uh, one hit or a few hits kills whoever you are, like let's say the real world, right? uh, If you want to get at a King in a medieval setting and kill Mm -hmm. him, uh, and you want to go on a suicide mission, like assassins tend to, they because there are kings that were killed in the street, up in you know all, all through history, they were sure. assassinated. I think if you have a a group of people that want to go in and do something and live, get back out, they have to sneak in, and it has to be something like a heist or something very specific, as right. opposed to killing the big bad evil guy. Because if you have a system, right. they're going to have protection. They're going to have you got to really have a. a, a some kind of a, I can teleport in, kill the bad guy, teleport out, or something like that. Right. So that's, to me, instead of tactical, it's just sort of like a heist kind of situation. Whereas the tactics tend to be, for me, if you have characters and you're fighting other characters, just here we are on a tactical board, what do we do to fight each other? Not necessarily, okay, I'm about to die, therefore I have to sneak up on something, or I have to really be... I have to surprise them. I have to do this. I because if they can get their feet on their feet together, you know, you even though you've surprised them with your tactics, once they're up and they start hitting you, you're back to the fact that you can only take one strike and you're dead. So, so that's the thing right. about if you have tactics. So a tactical military board game is war game is I can lose units, right? Right. I right. have my tank corps. You have your tank corps. It isn't just one volley and we're all dead. It's like multiple volleys back and forth. And my tank, all oh, this. The, Fourth Brigade has been completely blasted, but the 10th Brigade moves in, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And you have two equal sides. The guy who uses or the person who uses better tactics will win, right? Because they'll they'll organize their armor and their infantry, their support, you know, whatever, their airplanes. So, again, it just depends on what you're calling tactics in those systems. Well, I mean, actually, you make a really good point. Uh, uh, right. Like the, the 10th Brigade that can take 15 hits is your character. That can take 15 hits. They just are a brigade in and of themselves. That's a very good point. Yep. Cool. Uh, Jason's got a call now about alignment. See, if I was really organized, I'd put like all the alignment stuff together. I'm not doing it that way. Hey, guys. Jason here. I agree with Daniel that the OD&D books are well laid out. And I'm sorry. No, I disagree with Daniel that OD&D books are, are poorly laid out. And agree with KR that they're the best laid out things ever. <laughs> no? You guys were being sarcastic? Gotcha. Great discussion on alignment. Really enjoyed it. I I honestly don't have much to add to it. I am like Daniel, and I think like KR as well, that I like alignment as far as affiliation with a side, right? So you're affiliating with the side of law or the side of chaos, but both the side of law and chaos are these cosmic powers that neither one probably cares about humans at all. Chaos probably wants to dominate humanity and control everything where, you know, get rid of free will, whatever, where laws happily use humans as pawns in its battle against chaos, that kind of thing, right? So that's the kind of cosmology I like to see, Um, and I I like alignment in that method, and that's where what Daniel's talking about, like you're talking the chaotic alignment language and, and the people that aren't chaotic are, you know, they can viscerally feel that. And I'm into that. As far as using alignment for a personality test or personality guide, I don't like that as much. I like what Palladium Books does for that. I I like the Palladium alignment system much better 
as a personality guide. And honestly, I think that cosmic, the cosmic allegiance version of alignment, the long chaos, should probably be a separate thing from your personality. And I'd like to see them as, you, you don't have to have either one in a game, but if you're going to have them in a game, I think they should be separate systems. They shouldn't be combined together because you could be on the side of, you could be a bad guy, you know, who steals from people and does bad things and is super selfish, but you might still align yourself with the gods of law because you realize chaos is going to be a bad deal for you if they get control, right? So, yeah, I think that really they shouldn't be combined together. If you're going to have a personality thing in your game and you're going to have allegiance to gods in your game, they should be two separate things. That's my two cents. Well, I, you know, people uh, who are listening to this couldn't see. I'm watching Daniel's reaction. So when uh, Jason agreed with him at first, he was all excited. But then when he said he agrees with me, he was all disappointed. And then it turns out he was sort of not agreeing with either of us. But, but you know, and both. what I would say is, of course, Jason says, I don't have that much to say. Then he says stuff that's actually extremely interesting <laughs> about how to use alignment in an interesting way, because when we say, oh, I'm just going to, I don't want that alignment. It's not realistic. All the things we said, but the law and the chaos, how do they work? I did like the idea of the, these gods, we're just like a microbe on a microbe to them. Uh, we're mm -hmm. not even like ants. We're just, you know, but we still serve a purpose in this cosmic struggle of some kind. And then, and then his whole thing about personality and dividing. I don't know the palladium system. Are you, are you familiar with the palladium system of alignment? Not really. I've heard people talk about it, but it's basically right. It's like you're selfish or you're not selfish, like that kind of stuff. I think that's what they use. Okay. So anyway, that was interesting, his thoughts in terms of how to how to use those. Again, I think um, we you create a character in a game and you say, this is the way I'm going to play. Because it, it can also get into the whole like, well, this is what my character would do stuff, right? Some people are very much into creating a character right. that does some things and sometimes they'll base that in an alignment thing or they're just their personality thing. Again, that can be really fine depending on the tone of your game and where they take it. It can also be, can be a pain to the other players. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think that that comes down again to table etiquette and stuff too. Like, I think that that's, that's the problem there and people will use alignment as an excuse. And I think if you remove alignment as your personality then you can't do that you can't be like well i'm chaotic neutral that's why i did this it's like no it's because you're a jerk <laughs> so you know it's, it's a and you know the problem or whatever you know, I don't know problem is the right word with D, D is that you're playing around the table with a bunch of friends and if one character is a jerk a lot of times you'll just suck it up because it's your friend and you want to play with them right it's like really in the real world you'd be like no we're not operating with you you're pickpocketing people and you're like being mean to the barmaids and you're doing this i'm not going to hang out with you but because you're playing a game and that's quote their character you have to suck it up and i just don't think that's very cool i i think that's just bad player etiquette and maybe a whole other episode but i was wondering it's it struck me that um i wonder if and i know people hate paladins so this is good uh i wonder if the paladin is almost the source of this on some level because the first time i can see any kind of uh like, obviously, we have sides, right? But very specifically in OD&D, the paladin says if a fighter is lawful and has whatever high charisma, they can be a paladin. And then people start thinking about, well, what is a paladin? People have in their minds this, like, knight and acting good and that. And then they just start associating lawful with that. And I wasn't around to know it wasn't associated with it before. So I, I don't really know, but it's just really interesting. Um, it's an interesting conversation that will never go away. And I don't think removing alignment is necessarily the answer. 
I think restructuring it maybe is because I do think it's nice to have in a epic fantasy or even sword and sorcery. It's nice to have these quote sides, even though we don't really have them in life. Right. There's probably not too many people that are fully chaotic or lawful. I mean, you know, if you speed, if you go through a stop sign, I mean, you're not following every law. I mean, who's, you know. It's interesting because I, you know, the paladins to us were always kind of a pain in the ass, right? Because they were Dudley <laughs> Do-Rights and stuff, and mm-hmm. they always got involved in anything, any kind of wrong had to be righted, and and they right. were intolerant of people that didn't follow their their thing. And um, again, you had to roll that 17 charisma and three yep. six-sided dice, so they were very rare. And then, you know, um, yep. uh, so once you rolled that, and as I remember when things, when they had new, newer, you know, the rangers and different monks mm-hmm. and stuff, and they were so hard to roll. So once you right. rolled one up, you wanted to use it, right? And and again, people started to not, uh, I don't want to say fudge, but just have different 4D, pick the top three. Sure. Uh, my character sucks, I want to roll again, you know, because we wanted to have these these characters. So they had set up this system of rarity. And this is what happened, I think, with the whole modern system where you could just be whatever you want. And the first one we saw was Dragon Quest, the SPI game, where you just was a point build. So you could build mm-hmm. any character you wanted. And we found that to be really fascinating because it wasn't just, oh, my God, I rolled a 70 charisma. I could be a paladin, you know. So, right. but again, in terms of the alignment thing, to us, they were just a pain because we tended mm-hmm. to play. We played lawful characters, but we had a very... You know, how can I say we we had a very perspectivism kind of thing. Like, what was lawful in that kind of medieval setting? What's lawful in an old west setting might be a little different than what's lawful in today modern world, right? Because right. perspectives change on what those are, and we were always conscious of that. I think. Yeah, no, I agree, and, and I think too that uh, it's funny you say that you played the paladins as Dudley Do Right because uh, like it doesn't say that, right? I mean, it doesn't say right. in OD and D that's how you play it, but that's what people think of when they think of a paladin, probably even before. Like I'm thinking people are like, well, no, AD&D said, yeah, but this is pre-AD&D. You're talking about yep. OD&D, right? So I think people thought paladin, lawful fighter, a knight in shining armor, always doing right. And that starts shifting the idea of lawful into that, where it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be that. It could just be taking a side. So I think it's really interesting, the psychology there. Somebody created in one of those worlds a rigid, super lawful system such that oh. it was like ultimate military dictatorship kind of a thing. Right, And that was the law versus chaos. That was the idea that we had mm-hmm. that, and I remember running in that guy's world and thinking, this is really great. And I created these power crystals, law and chaos in my my own world, because we realized you have to have both. You can't right. just have all law because then it's like automatons or whatever the, what are the little modrons or whatever those creatures are right. in the 5e system, right? They're ultimate law. And so, th- th- and this guy just thought if it's all lawful, all rule-based, and these rules are correct, I'm stuck in this mathematical system. To an outsider, it might be this nightmarish military hierarchical system where there's yeah. no freedom, there's no, you are stuck in this world because these are. this is the law. You know, it was interesting, right. you know, like- 1984, that right? Level. That's basically 1984, right? I mean, on yeah, some level. Yeah, that would be an ultra-lawful system, even yeah. though it's dehumanizing. Right. Because humans are both law and chaos. That's right. All right, so <laughs> well, this is the philosophical talk with the uh, yes, exactly. Well, that's what All alignments right. get to. All right, so Jason did tell me that this uh, this next call might be contentious, and we don't have to play it. So he so get ready for him to be contentious. It, it's raw. Okay. Hey guys, Jason here. Just listen to your rules is written episode. 
And I think there are two key points here. One is that nobody should be giving anybody else a hard time for how they play. You know, trying to play rules as written or as close as possible rules as written is a perfectly valid way to play just as much as house ruling is. And neither one is wrong and neither group should be telling the other that they're wrong to try to do it. So back in the 80s, we never played AD&D rules as written. We didn't play role master rules as written. You know, you know, I don't know that we played any game exactly rules as written, to be honest. Um, but since getting back in the hobby and getting back into AD&D, you know, there, there's groups out there that do try to play as close as possible to rules as written without enforcing on other people. And, you know, I've hooked up with some of these guys and we've played games pretty close to rules as written. And the reason to do that is, or the reason we do it, I should say, you know, obviously you do what you want to do, but the reason we do it is out of the challenge, out of the enjoyment of the game, and, and just to see how it goes. And interestingly enough, you can pretty much play AD&D rules as written. Are there things that conflict, like initiative? Sure there are. But for the most part, you really can play it rules as written. And it's not unplayable. It, it's not wrong to try to do that. It, it's a perfectly valid way to play the game. You know, I'll point to the game of Top Secret that Daniel and I played recently. That wasn't exactly rules as written. I know with some of the skill checks and all, Daniel had some personal uh, opinion in there. He, he, But for the most part, I think we tried to run rules as written, Top Secret, first edition. And I think it worked fine. Um, Gygax definitely wrote with a sense of humor, and, you, you know. And he's he's writing with a wink and nod to the to the audience. I agree with Daniel on that. When you go back and you look at a lot of the writers of that time frame, the 60s, 70s, that he would have grown up reading and would have been reading at the time he was writing, a lot of those authors in sports magazines and other magazines all wrote, you, you, you know, with that wink and a nod style, kind of making the fun of the readers a little bit, making fun of themselves a little bit. And, and I firmly believe the Gygaxian high prose includes that kind of style. So when he's saying only use AD&D miniatures to play AD&D, he's not telling you that you're not allowed to play without AD&D official miniatures. You know, it, part of that's that wink and, and nod thing. And maybe some people aren't going to get that. I get that. But, you know, it's like the, the opening of the book. When you read and it talks about any player that, um, reads the DMG should suffer a punishment worse than death. You know, that's not serious. It, it, he's messing around with you. Um, but Gygax was maybe not a professional writer. Professional might be a strong term. But he had written other rules before that. You know, he had written war game rule sets before this. So it's not like this is his first try. Um, and role-playing games were a brand new thing. They were literally inventing the genre when they wrote these games. So it, you have to give them a little bit of pass for that. The thing about AD&D, of course, is that the rules are spread out, not among three books, but among like five or six books, because you have like the character record that has the capacities for different size carrying containers like sacks and whatnot. Some of those capacities are in the character record. They're not in any of the three core books. So you really have to look at them at the whole thing. And that's part of the reason we try to like we try to do this when you look at the 
Grog Talk Empire, you know, the Grog Talk YouTube show and all that is because it's the enjoyment of flipping and turning through the books, looking for the rules and doing that. And it is doable. There's there's nothing wrong playing that style. The the other interesting thing is once you take OD&D and add in all the supplements, you're very close to AD&D. So AD&D was almost required because OD&D and all the supplements added to it was getting creaky and unusable to some degree. And AD&D is almost the cleaned up version of OD&D with all the supplements. Because OD&D, once you add in the supplements, is a very different beast than just the three little brown books by themselves. All in all, interesting talk. I think it could, might have benefited from a little more positivity for and examples of playing games rules as written. But, you know, it's all good. So I will talk to you guys later. Take care and keep up the great work. So interesting where we, I guess we, I was saying, and I don't know if you were too, we were kind of saying, oh, people don't really play rules as written or what, there's always some little add on or something. I don't know. I, I don't remember being super negative about the idea of that, but maybe we were, I can't remember. Yeah. I, I think that, it, and if, if we were, I, you know, maybe we, maybe yeah, we were, I didn't mean maybe we were being sarcastic with a wink and a nod. Like I guess, no, I agree with pretty much everything Jason <laughs> said. And I think too, part of the reason why is because when you talk to somebody like Jason, He'll say things like try to, right? Where I think the people that I was talking about, if I was, and I didn't want to name them because I don't want to give them, you you probably know who they are if you're on social media. They tell you if you don't play it exactly the way it's written, you are somehow failing at D&D. Like literally these are things that people say. And that that's what I push against. I think that first of all, you those people that are saying that that's I think I did say so I was probably I'm pretty sure I said let me see you actually do it because maybe I was making a challenge and you know because if you tell me you don't do anything that's not rules is written and everything's right I will tell you that I don't think you're right I think you can say I try to do it but every time you read something in that book you are having to make a, a, a determination of what that means and this is where this I don't, I don't, I guess I'm, I don't understand the contentiousness of right. I'm, rules so. is written or not. Yeah. I guess I could just say, I would have to sit with you and play in your group for six months to see if you truly mm -hmm. are, first of all, I'd have to know the rules inside and out. Then right. I'd have to sit there and watch you play to get a gotcha moment where you're not really playing them as, so I don't understand well, yeah, why I mean, yeah, it's I would, contentious I wouldn't do that. Say, I guess, I think I was being contentious by saying, show me. And I, I so I, I, I will apologize a little bit for that. But 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 I think but I think that's my reason. I think my reason is there are people that are like if you're not playing rules as written, you're playing wrong. Uh, you know, and that's and, obviously and, ridiculous. Why? Yeah. And what? Why would someone care to say that? It's interesting. I guess that's the world of the OSR. I guess well, something I'm not familiar with. I don't I don't understand that because why do I care? And if you tell me we're going to try to rule, play the rules AD and D as as best we can as rules is written, and I get in your game, and it's a great stories. I like the people that are playing. Uh, I did play the system a long time ago and it was, I had a fun time and I would just, I'd be into it, but would I be sitting there going, wait a minute, that's not the rules. Or, or, Cause then we get into those right. arguments about what did they mean by adventure? I don't want to have those arguments. Just 100%. tell me what you, you interpret it as. I could sit there and be quietly thinking to myself, Oh, that's not what I think is the rules is written, but what right. difference does it make? Really? I played with all those supplements. We created all sorts of our own homebrewed rules because we found inconsistencies in the supplements, maybe because we were, 15 years old or whatever it was. And so maybe if, if we'd had an expert there, he could have said, or Gygax sat with us and said, no, 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 it's supposed to be this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. We could have played with those 
six books and had or what, what was it at the end uh, nine books or something i can't remember but but we didn't we did we we found problems with it we found things yeah. that weren't answered we created our own rules so and then AD&D yeah that was a cleanup of 100%. all those issues right nobody ever said it has to be rules as written it just what didn't exist that i knew yeah I, I agree with that and i think that's probably what i i'm pretty sure because i think i, can, I was the one that came up with the topic because i had seen a bunch of tweets about and it's funny because you'll see things people will say things like hmm, player clerk players don't take time to read the rules so they, they're not good players it's like well you know maybe you're just having fun with your friends so that's my positivity to it is like if you're having fun and you're doing stuff. First of all, most rule sets say, and I'm pretty sure I said this, change the rules. Even AD&D says that. Though Gygax does make this point of saying, then you're not playing AD&D if you change the rules. But again, is he tongue-in-cheek? Who knows? Whatever. I mean, I kind of think he is, but some people will tell you no. You know, and again, this is, the book says this. <laughs> so, so is that rules is written that you can't change anything? Or at the end of the book where it tells you to make changes for yourself, is that the rules is written? So I think that the that's why we talked about it, I think, because that kind of person is out there that will tell you you're doing things wrong if you don't follow every rule perfectly. And I don't believe that. I think for me, playing the game and enjoying the game and the rules as they exist at your table are something that you create. That That's what makes war games, to a certain extent, and RPGs different than, let's say, Monopoly, right, where even though people do play that wrong, you know, people expect you to play a board game exactly as it's written, right? People don't expect you, at least most people I play with don't expect you to play an RPG that way. At least that's been my experience and that's why I enjoy them. And I don't think that to spin it back around to, to, to agree with Jason, I think that trying to play a game as close as possible to written is important. But I think that we have to give ourselves the ability to interpret rules because we're not there with the person that wrote them. And I can tell you, as somebody who's writing my own rule set, sometimes I'm at the table and I'm like, yeah, this is a thing I didn't think of. And now that doesn't make sense. Like I've created a situation and I would expect players to look at that and go, yeah, we got to change this because it's not working for us. And that's good. That That's how the game evolves and works. You, you don't want to hit the wall and be like, oh, you know what? It doesn't make any sense because this rule contradicts this one. Now we have to throw these books away. No, we, we, we change things to suit our table. And I think that's the power of the table. I will also say there's a classic mm -hmm. meme out there somewhere where someone says, oh, you're going to play at my game, and they have a giant folder of, you know, a giant <laughs> volume. Here's all our homebrewed rules that you have to look right. at, right? It's a meme because it's a nightmare. Like, I got to read all this and the right. rules and see how they contradict or whatever. Because to me, it's almost, if somebody said, I'm going to play 5e, but I'm just playing with the player's handbook and the DMG, and that's it. No other classes, no other things. Because I just want to play that. That's more interesting in some ways than, oh, and then I've, I'm going to play 5e, but here's all my homebrewed rules because we, you know, because now I got to learn all that and how they interact. So simplifying homebrew, which is just taking initial or like what you're doing. I'm going to take the first three books. That's it. Yeah. Because well, the, the we played always with those supplements and they caused some issues. They changed yeah. the game rather dramatically. We found it interesting at the time, mm -hmm. but. The point is, is that that's more interesting to me than, oh, here's my stack of homebrews or my my thing of like, I'm going to play everything as written. You know, as Jason said, they had, what, five books by that time when the, the system. Yeah, well, that's a it, lot of. And, and I, but I do I do see. So going on this conversation, I do see the idea, right, of, of saying, OK, I, I agree with you. I think what you said, which is kind of agreeing with Jason, which is I would rather play 5e with just the player's handbook DMG rules as written then have a bunch of somebody else's home rules in there because I think the system's real tight and it works. But 
Uh, you might say, well, rules is written. I can play a monk. And I might say there's no monks in my world. Now, am I playing rules is written? And again, that's when you start getting this weird like. Oh, yeah. So so I think that the idea is that it, it, my personal preference is this. If I get a brand new system, I do not start pulling it apart. I'm, I try to run it as close as possible to the way it's written as I can. I don't do it because I think that that is some um, ideal, right? There's an ideal to playing rules written. I do it because I want to see what the designers had in mind. If I didn't care what they wanted, I was just going to do my own thing. Why did I buy this game, right? So I'm going to try to play it as close as possible. Then within the, the realm of how the rules are written, I will make changes as necessary. And I don't want somebody telling me you're doing it wrong because if you're at my table, this is how I'm doing it. As long as I'm clear and fair about it, that should work for me. Dude on the internet telling me I'm not a good player because I don't memorize all the rules. You can go play with somebody else. All right, we have another call from Jason. This one is systems and conditions. Hey guys, just listen to your systems and conditions episode and I have thoughts. Um, so I've been playing in a Pathfinder 1 game, Wrath of the Righteous, a uh, venture path run by Joe Richter of Hindsightless for over a year now. And really enjoying it. It's not the only game I would want to play, but it's a very specific kind of play. And I do enjoy that tactical combat because I like war games and whatnot. Um, but the system's very interesting because it, it's a specific kind of play here, right? The um, By the way, as far as tracking the things, honestly... I'm not a big fan of VTTs, but using Roll20 and having the sheet track everything for you is very helpful for Pathfinder. Clicking one button to attack and having that figure out if you hit, if you made a critical hit, doing the damage rolls, everything, is very helpful for Pathfinder. Being able to just click a button to have the conditions take effect and automatically apply the, the modifiers is very helpful for Pathfinder. So if you're playing Pathfinder, I almost would recommend online this is i would almost recommend using a vtt if not then i would make up three by five cards or something for conditions and give them to the players when they get that condition oh your bleed here here's a bleed card to help them remember to take that hit point damage every round or whatever so i would use condition cards if i was running pathfinder in person okay as far as the gm i think if you fudge in pathfinder as the gm you're cheating the players and you're breaking the system. I think Pathfinder is a game where you can't fudge as the GM at all. I'm not a fan of fudging anyway, but I'm a fan of the players. But Pathfinder is built for the GM as adversary, not as adversarial. So not a GM where, hey, I know this is your weakness, so I'm going to exploit it. Or, I, you know, I don't like you, so I'm going to throw everything at you. I don't mean that. I don't mean the GM is a dick or the GM is adversarial play. I mean the GM playing the adversaries to those adversaries best. So the GM, when they're playing the monsters in combat, should be trying to kill the players. They should be using the monsters' abilities to their fullest against the players in combat. Because otherwise you're cheating the players in those tactical combats. So I think Pathfinder's a fair bit different. Now, what I just said about playing as the adversary, of course, can apply to any role-playing game. But I think it especially applies to games like Pathfinder that are so structured with the rules. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if that means I disagree with KR or not. <laughs> Talk to you guys later. Great episode. Yeah, I don't know uh, what my <laughs> point on conditions. I can answer to the Pathfinder. I played 2E quite a bit. And 
Those conditions, like he's talking about bleed, wounded, uh, sickened, all these things. So let's say the bleed, something that claws you, does damage, and you get a bleed one, you're bleeding. You're 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 mm-hmm. taking that. It's not just damage. It's like you've been struck in such a way, and that bleed either takes hit points at the end of every one of your turns, or it causes some kind of additional condition or whatever. And what they're trying to systemize is what are the effects of being clawed, right? It isn't just hit points. And it's just a different way to think about damage and combat and everything. It, it, some people might say it's really interesting. Some people might say, I don't want to keep track of all that. It doesn't bother me. I, I enjoy that kind of system because of the tactical thing, especially as he said about like being the GM. Mm-hmm. But, at, but as a player, you know these things are going to do X, Y, and Z to you. And that can start to that can start to be a problem because of the effects of these things. So tactically, you're going to have to think about that. But so I don't know what whether what I said that he would disagree or agree with. But uh, <laughs> it is an interesting thing about the Pathfinder yeah. system. Yeah, I, I don't think I had much to say in this particular episode because I wasn't playing it. But but I'll say I'll make a couple of uh, statements which may or may not be controversial. One is that I, I, although, and I've heard Jason say this before. If if you have to, if you press a button, it does seventeen rolls for you and tracks all this and that and that. Why is it even in the game? That's the way I look at that. I'm sorry. I think that like if you're playing a game that's crunchy, you're playing it because you want a crunchy game. Otherwise, what makes Pathfinder? Maybe somebody can answer this. What makes playing Pathfinder different than playing BX? If you just roll one die and it doesn't matter, because I mean I know it matters mathematically, but in play it doesn't matter. You're not doing anything. You know, it's like a slot machine versus playing blackjack. Right? It's like they're both gambling, but is the slot machine really gambling? Like, do you need all the, you know, I mean, I guess some people would think it was. And the other point that I'll make or, or thought that I'll make on that is that, because it was came up with you saying that. So if you have 150 hit points in Pathfinder or some crazy amount like that, how many hit points do you have in Pathfinder? You, you know, I mean, I have only played up to seventh level. I have okay. a, uh, a witch character. I have like 66, but there okay, are so other so you have 66 hit points. If something attacks you and you get a bleed condition, that means you are actually hit and hurt. Yes. Which means that Pathfinder's hit points are meat, unlike D&D, which means somehow your character, as they level up, becomes bulkier and bulkier and be able to take more and more damage. See, that's what I don't like about that. That that then breaks the hit point thing because hit points are already broken. They don't make any sense in people's minds because people think 5e does the same thing. You're bleeding. I am like... I'm bleeding at at 50 hit points, but then I'm also bleeding at 25 hit points at a different level or bleeding at 100 hit points at a different level. Like hit points start to break down when you make them real, which is what I think things like that do. I don't mind a confused or a sleepy or a blind condition, but bleeding to me just seems really weird. I don't know. That's just me personally. And I just thought of it now when we're talking about it. Um, I think it's an abstraction towards the fact that you've taken these hit points, but right. then every turn because of this, you're going to take more hit points. So however you want to, if they say bleed or they say wounded or they say whatever. So right, but at the end of your turn, because you've been injured in such a way, it's you just look at it from an abstraction standpoint, you're going to take more hit points from this damage. It isn't just a one-time damage. So that's all. I mean, you can they no, say No, I, I understand it, but it, 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 I understand what it's for and how it works in a game sense, and I don't I don't mind it. But it's one of those things that I, that I often have problems with, with like rapid healing and all the other things. Like if you're playing in a game, if you play 5e, let's say, and you say the initial hit points you start with are like your meat, we'll call it. That's what they, they call it. I think I actually 
Kygex calls it that. And then after that, all the ones you get in each level are more like luck, skill, the gods love you, whatever. That works much better for me, which is basically how AD&D describes it, going back to AD&D, than that you're just getting bulkier each level. But as soon as you start calling half hit points, like half hit points when you're on seventh level and you have 60 hit points, as soon as you start calling that wounded or bleeding, now all of a sudden that breaks away from this idea that it's luck of the gods, this and that, and it becomes, you must actually be getting hit every single time. And to me, that is kind of, it's just a weird broken part of, uh, broken is the wrong word, it's a weird part of D&D and hit points and all that in general. I mean, it's nothing Pathfinder specific. It just made me think of that. It made me go, I'll be more, I, like I hated that in 5e when they're like, oh, they're bloodied. That's the word. They're bloodied. Oh, I'm bloodied? Oh, so I'm, so I'm hurt. But are, am I really hurt? I mean, is that really what it is? Do, do, am I affected in some way? I think you are in Pathfinder. And so, but like, do I walk slower? Do I attack less? I mean, you know, it, it's an interesting just overall conversation about hit points. It really isn't directly related to his call. So I split him going sideways, but I just thought it was interesting because of that. Sorry. Right. And I, I would say to me, the I didn't see any difference. I guess you could call him luck or whatever to the gods. I, I don't know that you could take more. A hit that would kill an ordinary person doesn't kill you at seventh level because of your skill. So we're just marking that off and we're not going to say that it has any effect on you, your right. abilities. So let's say you have 100 hit points in AD&D or whatever system you're playing mm -hmm. or 50 or 10 or I don't know. Well, let's, let's say 50 mm -hmm. and you've taken 49. And so you got one hit point left and you're still just fighting at the same level you were at 50. Right. Because because that's the way the game system works. You can justify that however you want. And by the way, in Pathfinder, if you're at one hit point, but you don't have any of that sustained damage, it's not necessarily going to make you. But if you have a condition, if the wound is such that it gives you a condition, like Wounded 1, it affects your DC checks, your armor class, all sorts of things so that it you're does trying do to it. do. It affects it. So that's what happens. The creature it hits you in such a way that it also affects your ability to do things. Mm -hmm. And you can have wounded two, wounded three, wounded, you can have bleed one, bleed two. There's all sorts of these conditions. Sleepy one, you know, confused one, <laughs> confused, stupefied. I mean, there's, there's many, many conditions. And what happens is it begins to affect, when you're throwing spells at people and you stupefy them, they have this dazzle. And you can right. dazzle, you can confuse them, you can stupefy them. And that's what's calculating. So the character's been stupefied, wounded, bleeding, whatever. He's saying that's like five conditions, and that has to be calculated. So they have roll 20, it calculates it for you. Now, I've played with things where there's all those conditions. It's not that difficult to keep track because it's just you mm -hmm. just say, what is it? What do they have? And then there's some that don't stack and all those kind of rules. You know, it's like advantage, disadvantage doesn't stack in 5e. So it's just a different way to play. I don't know right. about justifying it, saying, I just never, I never got into that because there weren't rules. As far as I remember, maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but if you're at one hit point in OD&D, does it affect your abilities? Does it make you less capable? I can't remember. No, no, it doesn't. And and like, I, that's kind of was the point I was making is that to justify that, Gygax talks about in AD&D how your hit points aren't your, and again, he uses the term your meat, right? It's like a four hit die fighter is not the same as a four hit die um, horse, right? Every time you hit a horse, it's taking damage because it's a big bulky thing. But a fighter whose forehead die is just a man, but because he's high level, protected by the gods, blah, 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 you know, however you want to say it, he isn't actually getting injured. And that's kind of how they explain it. But of course, then it breaks down because it's like, well, then why do you only get one hit point back a day? 
And again, hit points never actually work. But I love, though, that you basically, you actually said something that I, that you answered my question in a way. So it does matter. So if you're bleeding or you're wounded, it does affect your attacks and stuff. So oh, yeah. you really you really are hurt, which I think is really cool. I think it's, I, I don't think that I would want to play a game long term as my only game that, that has that depth of crunch. But I like that it's there. Like, I think that if you're going to call a bleed a bleed, then you're bleeding. It should actually affect you and you should really be bleeding. It shouldn't just be like, oh, I'm fine. You know, I, and I like what the happens idea is that you get into yeah. condition spirals, right? So even though you're, you have 120 hit points, suddenly you're bleeding one. And so it's affecting your ability to hit, even though you now have 115 hit points. Right. That affects you. And so now, and then it hits you again and get, you get bleeding too, or what, however it works, you're still, now you're at a hundred hit points, but now you're bleeding too. You're, you're, you're hurt. You're trying to fight. And this is what the Pathfinder concept, whether it, people like it or not, um, you get into these condition spirals that really affect things. And so it's just their way. It's just, it's just the system. I, I, I haven't decided yet. Like I said, I'm at seventh level and now potentially I have this other campaign. I think I'm at. I can't remember, but I like certain things about it a lot. And I like the classic crunch issues that I have thinking about trying to GM it. It's, and then mm -hmm. running a sandbox, it's, I don't know. We'll see. Cause 3.5, I found very difficult as a GM. I liked it as a player, didn't care for it as a GM. I, and I might have the same reaction with Pathfinder. In the, I don't know. All right. So here we go. This is Jason, uh, shiny new games. Oh, hold on. I gotta do it this way. Hey guys, Jason here. Just listen to your shiny new game episode, and yep, guilty is charged like you. I buy all these new games, but you know, when I look at my go-to games, the newest one is 20 years old, and most of them are 40 years old or more. So, you, you know, I don't necessarily agree with KR. I think the original games are totally fine the way they are. I prefer Boot Hill and Top Secret and ADD and or you know whatever so I, I like the older games quite a bit and prefer them to the newer games to be honest um, you know the, the newest game that's a go-to game for me is Barbarians of Lemuria and that's if it's not 20 years old it's sure knocking on it now and, and it probably is 20 years old by now um, so yeah, I don't think there's anything at all wrong with the older games. And I think, I mean, obviously, if you're not buying anything and not supporting the industry, and then the industry dies, you know, you're part of the problem, right? So you want to support creators and you want to support people in the industry. But I question sometimes all this junk I'm buying. And it's not junk isn't bad, but all the stuff I'm buying that I'm not using because, you know, and I'll play some of these new games, but ultimately I go back to the old games. So maybe that's just a feature of getting old. But, yeah, I, I honestly, I, I could, my game, if, if, if my library stopped at 1986, I'd be perfectly happy. So I'm not quite sure what I said about older games that uh, maybe I said when I used my comparison of a game from the 60s, a war game that was created in that milieu. And then when you go to 70s, 80s, and it becomes more sophisticated and it's a better simulation of that, I don't think I have any objection to games from 
the original AD&D, if you want to play that as opposed to 5e or whatever, whatever you, you enjoy. So I'm not quite sure what he's disagreeing with, but um, I think it's really interesting. And this, I'm going to do a little psychoanalyzing here of how Jason is a little, um, he know he wants to support these newer game people. He has got his shelf groaning under the weight, but he has to admit, and he says, because I want to support the industry, but he admits, I want to play things from 86 or, or before, which is fascinating because yeah. clearly he's into games. He has this, he has a podcast and he plays all these different games and yet he's finding himself drawn to these earlier games, which is because, because if you are doing all this stuff, you're going to be playing or at least looking at all these modern games. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's that, he just likes that older feel and, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm torn on this as well because you do want people to be creating stuff, you know, but if, if like what we were talking about, if all the newer, like the OSR clones just become a reformulation of the same rules, what are you really getting there as opposed to just going back and playing AD&D or second edition or the box set? Why, why do something else? So it's an interesting conundrum and, you know, I don't know if there's any answer to it. Yeah, I agree. I, and it's funny because I feel like Jason does it a lot of times. Like I look at the games I play, I play OD&D, like 90% of what I play now as far as fantasy and I do buy new games all the time. And it's funny, I've backed every single OSE Kickstarter. I run BX. I almost never use OSE. I use the, the PDF once in a while. And I have them on my shelf. I have three copies of that game. You know, <laughs> And it's like, I did it because I wanted to keep the, the industry going. Now he doesn't need it because Gavin's got like million dollar Kickstarters going. But early on, you know, I was like, I want to make sure that these games are made. And the reason why I was doing it was kind of what Jason said. I want to make sure games like this are being made so people find them. Because the thing is, when, we, when we're fully involved in, in a, a hobby, we see everything, right? Like, I'm around. I see all these new games popping up on, on drive-thru. I'm talking to people. But I went 30 or more years of my life thinking D&D wasn't even made anymore. You know, it's like I played it. I stopped playing in high school. And then I just, I think I saw second edition in college. It must have been in college. And, like, I saw it. I was like, oh, D&D. And I put it away and I never played it. And then all the time from, like, the early 90s, all the way up until like 20, whatever, 17 or whatever. I didn't think, like I said this before, I literally said to somebody who said, oh, we're going to play d and I said, they still make that game? Like, it just, it wasn't in my my eyes, so I wasn't there. And that's because there wasn't a lot of people making stuff for it, right? It wasn't out there. And so I want to support that, but at the same time, I'm buying games that I'm never going to play. And that's kind of wasteful. And, and so I am torn there. What I, what I try to do now is focus on getting supplements and things that I think I can use with the game systems I like, because I do think things come in trends. You had your like OD&D, like the early D&D, which came from war games, right? So lots of little specific rules, lots of little, little right? Uh, like OD&D is all kinds of people complain about that. You know, there's no single mechanic, but I'll get that in a second. And then you got the percentile games that all blew up and everything was percentile, right? For a long time. And then we kind of shifted over to D20 when the OGL, the first OGL came out and now everything's D20. And it's like you see these trends, and I don't know for me that they're better. I don't love a single mechanic. I don't love the D20 system, and everything is D20 now. So for me, I don't want to play the newer games because I don't like that. You know, I don't like this, you don't have ability scores, you just have bonuses, which is super popular. I don't like this, you know, just the various things that people put in. In fact, I made a video about things I don't like, even though I realize that they're good. I mean, I understand that these rules, I can look at it and go, oh, I can see how that rule is good. Uh, advantage, disadvantage. It makes things easy. I understand why it's good. But I don't like it. And and I don't like that. I'd rather have, uh, you know, I have to calculate bonuses and stuff. 
So because of that, I tend to lean towards older games because they have that style. And the funny thing about it is a lot of these more like recent OSR games that aren't retro clones strip away what is to me the old school vibe of the game. And they basically just make something that they're calling an old school game that is effectively fifth edition, just stripped to the bones. It's like, it's a D20 system, meet a target number. That's not an old school game. That's not, that's not how the old school games were. And I, not that this is bad, but I'm just saying, so for me, I'm not into that. Like, I'm like, I don't want to just roll a D20. And I know I love, I love the hateful place and which is basically that. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, most games like that just do nothing for me. Well, the hateful, that's another discussion, the hateful place and why that D20 works for you and others don't. <laughs> I think that I'm thinking now what Jason was talking about when he disagreed with me is that I talked about the evolution of something as though evolution means improvement. And, right. you know, and in reality, the selection of the evolution is just what's became successful, whether it was better or worse, it just became right. successful. And then things evolved and conditions changed and they died off. They were no longer successful. So, right. but they weren't necessarily better or worse, right? So I right. think if you have an environment like you do in the, with the OSR community where these older systems that kind of fell away from favor now have a place where they can survive, they'll do just fine. And the D20s or the whatever systems, the 5E, if it doesn't, you know, if the situation changes and people are mad, I don't see that happening right now, but if you could, they'll fade away and there'll be something new, right? Um, so it's just a matter of, yeah, personal preference and right. going back to those systems and and looking at them, and as as you have made a point though many many times, when you come from the to the OSR systems, having played, whether it's five E or three point five, you have a different perspective. You have a thing where you look at those old systems and you say, "Oh well, I'm going to play this like this or that," not necessarily playing it or just figuring out what they really mean, which isn't in the rules necessarily, because you've come from that perspective, and and you can't take that away. You know, you can't. Once you've seen Lord of the Rings, the orcs on, on the screen, when you read the books now, that's what you're looking at You're in your right. mind. Whereas when I read them, there were no, I mean, I just read the books and I had it in my mind. And then I started seeing the cartoons and the movie versions. Yeah, so those are the orcs that I, it's just a coming at it from a different perspective. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think that I, I, I think we probably said this, which is why he said guilty like us or whatever. I like to buy new games I, and I will. And even though I say this, I will buy a new game. It will be on my shelf and I will be like, okay, cool. I have this latest, greatest OSR or, you know, modern or dice pool game or whatever it is. And I'm not going to play it because I can pick up OD&D that does everything I need it to do and just play it. Like, I, I don't need the other games, but I want them because when you get something new like that, it, first of all, inspires you. And secondly, sometimes you see something in it that's cool. Like I just read, which is old, funny enough, uh, Tunnels and Trolls, the first edition. And I was like, oh, I like something in here and I'm going to use it. And I did something. So again, to me, that was a new game, even though it was an old game. And yeah. I like that. It's like, oh, here's the thing. And I like it better. So like in it's it's a pretty common OSR uh, house rule. I forget where it comes from. It comes very specifically from a blog that people credit, but I don't remember the one now. Shields may be splintered. And the idea of this is that if you have a shield... You can choose to absorb one blow. It doesn't hurt you. People have changed it. They've made it helmets. They made it. It's only a crit, whatever. But basically, that's the basic rule. And in and I never loved that because then you get the player that's like, all right, well, I'm going to carry seven shields because I'm going to have a hunchman carry shields. I got one on my back. I'm going to yeah. do this. You because got a pony is, or a mule yeah. or something. And they're like, I'm because what they're doing is they're looking at something which might be realistic. Maybe you would carry a bunch of shields, you know, in combat. I don't know, right? Especially if they're wooden shields. 
but now somebody's trying to gimmick put a put a they're trying to game the system. So I stopped using it because the first time that happened, I was like, fine, we won't do it anymore. And, you know, I did the thing. I'm like, you ruined it for everybody else to that player that did. I'm like, you want to do that? Fine. We just won't have that rule because that's not the point of the rule. The point of the rule is to make one heroic thing where it saves you that one time where you would have died. Not I'm just going to use this to absorb blows at every combat. So but anyways, going back to this, Tunnels and Trolls does it differently. In Tunnels and Trolls, uh, it just absorbs damage every hit. So a shield is different than armor. Because a shield absorbs damage and armor, armor protects you or something to that effect. And I like that. I like that shields are different. It gives you a reason to use a shield. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting way to uh, take on something. So now I'm, you know, shifting that rule. So if I hadn't picked up the shiny new, which was old <laughs> system to me, I wouldn't have seen that rule and want to use it. So I do think that I see things in rule sets, whether they be put out today or tomorrow or, you know, five years ago that I want to use. But I think when it comes down to it, I would rather just play the game I love and then add rules to it that is house rule <laughs> and that's what you're playing right all right let's do this we have one more we have call. one call yeah hey guys jason here just listen to your magic sword episode great episode the there i can't say that kr is wrong or daniel's wrong because you both had great examples and great points in this episode i think one other aspect of intelligent items you could do and this would in a regular game this would work better if an npc if this was an npc or, you know, NPC that had these items, or if you were playing one GM, one player. But you could follow the tropes like what you have in Rogue Trooper. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the British comic Rogue Trooper, but effectively, you know, it's it, it's a far future. You have synthetically grown soldiers, and they're all fighting. And so Rogue Trooper, his helmet, his backpack, and his rifle have chips with effectively the brains or personalities of some of his former comrades that had died. So he'll end up talking to his equipment because he's like off by himself, you know, and, but he'll have conversations with his equipment and they'll know some things or, or you could do, so you could do different things like that as well, which would be kind of cool. But I, I don't know that I would do that with a, a regular group, you know, cause now you're really at that point, you are adding a GM character into the mix. But if you're playing a, one GM, one player game, or an NPC has those kind of things, I could definitely see that where the NPC is always arguing with a piece of equipment or whatever. That that could be a lot of fun. I think that idea is really interesting of having yeah, a, too. A, a shield that has a personality or a helm. I mean, a helm makes sense because it's on your head or whatever. But And I'm sitting here thinking as I'm listening, have I done that? Probably, but I can't think of offhand i think i had items like that that had personalities but again i might just be taking what he's saying and maybe you're cl closer to that in terms of being you know because i've been in the 5e thing for a while and that that you know it's a different kind of thing so i don't know what do you do you have items that have personalities like a, a shield or a helm or a coffee cup or i don't know <laughs> that that are sentient you know I have done that, but not for things that people wear. So aside from swords, which are my primary, uh, which we probably talked about in the episode, I have done things like a mirror, for instance, you know, classic mirror, mirror on the wall, mm -hmm. stuff like that. But thing, things player characters aren't taking, but they're interacting with. Or you go to a statue yeah. and it talks and answers yeah. questions. But yeah, that's a really interesting idea. And what I actually think was interesting about that was the idea that it picked up stuff from their friends. Yeah. So if you were playing in one of these like campaigns where like resurrection stuff just isn't an option and up and dead is dead, 
you could actually do something where like you, cause you wouldn't want to do this in a place where they could be resurrected. Now you're killing your, your friends, but you could do a thing. Like if anybody dies within the rel- range of your sword, it sucks their personality. And that'd be really interesting. Actually. I, again, it would be hard to do in a game that was with a lot of players, because like, if it's your character that dies, now I have your character's personality in my sword. Like, are you running them plus your new character? Yeah. So it would have to be more like with their, their skills, right? It'd be like, Oh, well you were a magic user. So the sword will know certain facts about magic. It could be really interesting. I, I like this idea of collecting, and actually you could see chaotic type collecting souls of people, you know, so that they can, you know, get more powerful, which is kind of bad. <laughs> you know? Well, so for instance, if you had a wand that had the soul of a magic user, a wizard, right? Or whatever system you're having, and it has some communicate. Now again, does it have an ego? Does it have try to take over that kind of stuff? But However, you the, you rules because again with these kind of things, I have a tendency to just homebrew them and not necessarily use what's in the you know ego book or whatever the the, the thing. But the point is, is that it makes right. sense for a magic user to potentially be in a wand or a cleric to be in a scepter, um, and depending on. But you know, again, the soul of a cleric, do they, their god want them to be in this thing, and how does that actually work? And Again, you can just do whatever you want to do, but I'm always thinking of consistency in terms of what the what the because the personality of a sword I tend not to think of as an actual person that lived, but you have the souls of elves, and so in your world. But to me, it's like it's just a created kind of thing. They have the ability to create a form of sentience. It doesn't know any better in a way. It's like the tiger that grows up in the zoo doesn't know that it's in the zoo, right? It doesn't because if you take a tiger out of the wild and put it in a cage. It's like, why am I in this cage? Right. So that's kind of the, I always think about sentience is that it's just a created thing. But again, that's just my way of looking at it. So it's interesting. I, I found that I just, you know, I'm thinking about it and thinking, Oh, I might just use that at some point. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good, good point. And the way that I generally treat it is again, it's not like, I don't have the talking swords. Like I don't, and some people play them up like this, obviously, and that's totally fine, but I don't generally have them right. Like their character. You know, I more have them that you can every once in a while, like they have if they have a goal, like the 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 beheader that uh, one of my player characters have, like it wants them, the, the player to take heads. So whenever he pulls the sword out, he's it's always like, take its head, you know. So but that's basically all it is. Right. It's a very simple. It's not having a long conversation with you. Yeah. But I think, like Jason said, if you're playing in a game where you're playing with one player, let's say, because part of the problem with doing this in a group setting is that. If that one player has a special item, now all of a sudden the DM is dealing with them constantly kind of thing, right? So I think, right, if you're playing one-on-one, that's a great way to just feed information. Like, hey, computer, like, think about, like, Knight Rider, right? Like, the the car, right? right? It was a robot, right? So it's like right. you basically, you could play Knight Rider, but in D&D with it being your helmet or your horse or something. Right, and you just <laughs> ask it a question. And most of right. the time it might say, I have no idea. I don't have any information. But <clears throat> if it is related to something that it would know, it could say, well, you know, the Thoracians were an ancient race of, you know, deadly horsemen or something. Oh, okay. So I know that or something. I don't know. But just some basic bit of information if it's relevant. It's just another way to get your story out because that's another thing about one of the things of having an elaborate sandbox and you're creating all these things is how do you convey that information, you know, right. typically like you'll be in a book or something and tapestry or however it is. And then the sword has some information about that culture. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all our callers. If you'd like to hear your voice on the show, give us a call. You can find all the ways to do that in the show notes. If you'd like to see more RPG content from us, 
you can find us both on YouTube, KR at D&D Homebrew and myself at Bandit's Keep. Those are also linked in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, please give us a rating, ideally on Apple Podcasts, as it helps the show be seen by more people. And we'll see you next week.